This week, I'm interviewing the founder of the iconic and utterly feminine boho clothing label, Ghost, Tanya San OBE. And this woman's journey, her life, is literally like a Hollywood movie. I've almost been speechless throughout the whole interview, where the twists and turns just couldn't have been expected. Of course, we know she ends up becoming a phenomenal female entrepreneur when this just wasn't something that women did. Creating a clothing label that actually today, for its sustainability, the fact it was for every age, every shape, was so ahead of its time. Tanya's story not only is about how she never gave up or gave in, but in every twist that she had to endure... She remained utterly undimmed. And now at 78, Tanya and I sat down and we spoke about this story. We spoke about her courage and determination. And it's really a life truly lived on our own terms. What a woman. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses. And I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Tanya, it is a pleasure to meet you today. What a woman you are. I admire your tenacious, entrepreneurial, fiery, independent spirit. So thank you so much for joining us on Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you for all the compliments. You're, of course, the famous founder of the remarkable Ghost Label. And so many people who are listening now will be nodding their heads, recalling a dress that they wore, wishing that they could get into it now that myself, I have to say. But it is just a remarkable story. And I'd love to start, if I can, before I go back to your childhood, because reading your book, Free Spirit, it is a remarkable book, but it's your foreword that had me hooked. Can I describe it to our listeners? Yes, please do. Well, you described it as it was a time in 1998 when you were opening your fifth standalone ghost store. You already had 20 concessions, but life was spiralling out of control. You said that a small business that you had started 20 years earlier had become a bit of a monster. And I mean, it sets up for quite a colourful history that you then talk about. And it's... um. Do you sometimes, before we get started, do you sometimes think back to your journey and... Can you believe the ride that you've had? No, I can't. It was incredible. And um, 
I'm actually amazed at what I achieved. You know, it doesn't it doesn't seem real anymore. Does it feel like someone else's life or, or your own life? Well, it obviously was my life, but it, it, it doesn't seem real at the moment. But can I just say one little thing, Holly? Yes. You will get into your ghost clothes because they have natural stretch. Ah. And they cut on the bias mainly. So please, please try them on again. <laughs> I will. I will. It was for a while ago. It was my sixth form. It's pushing it, Tanya, even for me. But I, I promise you I will. I've actually still got it. So I promise you I will. Okay. I'd love to go back to your parents, Jean-Claude and Daphne, who were both refugees and they met in an air raid shelter in Kensington during the war. You were a young child during the war, but rationing and the effects of war lasted years longer. When you look back, Tanya, was it a happy childhood, one filled with good memories or tough memories? Um, mixed. I hated school. I was quite happy on my own at home with my budgerigar and my granny. And and I did lots of ballet and lots of tennis. Um, no, my childhood was, was moderately happy. You were in a world of daydreams, I read. Do you think that formed your independent spirit? I have to confess, yes. The, the fact that I was in a children's home for the first three years because my parents had nowhere to live made me very, very independent. And yes, I, I lived in my own little world, daydreaming nonstop at school as well. I hardly heard what was going on. I think it's a symptom of addiction, actually, which is in the genes. So your parents were refugees. They were. And you say that you didn't have anywhere to live. Just describe this period of time, because you were born in January 1945. Is that right? When V2 rockets were still raining down on London. Yes. Um, so I was born in Southfields because it was a little bit outside the centre of London. And... Um, my mother was working at the BBC Overseas Service while studying at, at um, London School of Economics. My dad was snapped up by Reuters when he arrived because he spoke Russian and Romanian and they, all the people who spoke languages here had been snapped up by the intelligence part of the war effort. So he was assigned to Reuters news agency. So they were both fully occupied and I was put in a children's home for the first three years. And then we stayed with various friends of ours after that. We, we went to one family um, who lived in Buckingham Palace Road and then another one who lived in just off Gloucester Road. And then finally, my lovely granny, who mainly brought me up, um, she was Welsh and she'd gone to work in the oil fields in Romania when she was young as a secretary because she was very adventurous. Wow. She um, got the money from her husband who was living in Paris. They were separated. He gave her the money to put down on a, an apartment in Bayswater where I grew up eventually. From about the age of five, I think, five or six, I grew up there. School was difficult. You were a daydreamer, as you said. Not always. When I left primary school and went to my secondary school, it was a grammar school then, it's independent now, Godolphin and Latimer. I was in the sea stream. I was furious I was in the sea stream. And so I got 100% in all my exams and I still wasn't moved up. They said it was my attitude. After that, I didn't really bother much with studies. Then I started really daydreaming. And what was the attitude? I don't think I had attitude then, but I think I was a bit strange to the school teachers who were... 
I would hate to say this, but the majority of them were bitter old spinsters. They hadn't got husbands because all the men were killed in the First World War. And um, I was very pretty. I had a funny name, Tanya, and no one was called Tanya in those days. Everyone was Susan or Margaret or Mary. And they just thought I was a bit odd. Um, There were no black kids in the school. Very, very different from today, which is now a multicultural society. It really wasn't then. Mm. So I I sort of stood out as being a bit unusual, I think, the way I wore my uniform or what I did to my uniform because I used to... I used to um, I used to do things to my uniform. What did you do? <laughs> well, the s- summer dresses I, I made all myself with my granny, and I was always in trouble. They were the collar was wrong. This was too wide. That was too low. It was too short. It was too long. Something was wrong. And with the grey skirt, I used to shorten them or make it a bit tighter. I didn't make my own uniform, but I certainly shortened it and made it tighter. So that's one thing we do have in common. Tell me about when you left school then, because it was at 16 years old and you briefly entered the world of modelling before heading off to university in Sussex. Is that right? No, I left at 18. Oh, oh, okay, 18. I left at 18 and it was one of the happiest days of my life when I left that school. It really was and I wanted to be an actress. Oh. That was my one one aim in life was to be an actress. But it didn't quite work out. I had a screen test in uh, Rome with uh, Rosanna Brazzi, who was the star of South Pacific. And uh, he asked me very politely if I would make love with this young man in front of him and his wife. It was their pre-dinner entertainment. It's all in the book. And... Uh, that kind of put me off acting, and so I came back and I went to university. Oh, my gosh. I knew this interview was going to be like something I've never, ever heard before. I mean, it's just shocking, but you went on. I mean, I, I could I could pause there, but you went on to study history and psychology, uh, social psychology. Um, quite, It was quite unusual, wasn't it? As ever, already I'm, I'm picking up a theme here, quite unusual for women to go to university in the 60s. I think it was fewer than one in 10 women really went to university. Yeah. Well, I've read up about it. Um, and there was a feminist movement, am I right in thinking this, a cultural change, the miniskirts, the pill came along, abortion was legalised. What did it feel like at that time? Um, it felt very free, actually. I mean, I had one friend who made it her mission to um, make sure that none of the boys were virgins. Um, it was... <laughs> You know, it was it was very it was very very free. The girls got up to all kinds of things. I had no idea that there were so few women at university then. Yes, that's amazing. I didn't know that. And did you enjoy it? Um, I didn't do an awful lot of work. Um, I had a lovely. I had a fantastic boyfriend, and. Uh, in the holidays, we worked in a club in London called Blazes. Yeah. I was on the blackjack table. It was a dance and drinking club, but there was a roulette table and a blackjack table. I was on the blackjack table and my boyfriend was doorman. And we saved up enough money to buy this houseboat in Shoreham, which was huge. It was an old land carrier left over from the war. Wow. And we took in three students to help with the rent, to help pay for everything. 
So, I mean, I, I was an entrepreneur at university. Before that, in the second year, I rented a house where I took in other students who, who paid. So it was already coming through. This sort of... The entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, the way of looking at life. Yeah, I don't think the word entrepreneur existed then. No, um, I'm sure it didn't. <laughs> Less alone how to spell it, which I still find mm. hard. Um, you met your and married your husband, Michael, who was a filmmaker uh, not too long after graduating. And then began a period of your life in the swing 60s, living between LA, London and New York. It was a turbulent time, a wild time, shall we put it that way? How old were you? I married him on my 24th birthday. He'd been a pop singer before, actually. He'd had three number one hits, most dreadful songs. <laughs> um, if we had time, I'd sing you one. It was, come outside, come outside, there's a lovely moon up there. <laughs> yes, then he'd gone on to become a film director and he became best friends with John Phillips. Los Angeles in 1969-1970 was completely and utterly, I mean, it was mad. There was a lot of drugs and people were dying all over the place. I did not take drugs then. I got pregnant very quickly, had a miscarriage of my first child got pregnant again, and because I only had one ovary due to an operation I'd had when I was 11, I had to literally lie down in bed for almost three months and take life incredibly easy. But it was quite bad then. I can't even begin to describe it. It was off, just after the summer of love, and people were taking a lot of hallucinogenic drugs, mm -hmm. mescaline and acid, and uh, my husband became best friends with John Phillips, John Phillips was the part of the Mamas and Papas. He wrote all their songs, California Dreaming. Wow. And um, he spent most of his time with John. And they dreamt up that they were, I think, on obviously on drugs, that they were Percy Shelley and Lord Byron reincarnated. And they wanted to make a film about it. It was really, really mad. Did you feel settled? I mean, you're pregnant, you're having a baby. Did how, how did that feel at the time? I felt lost the whole time I was there because in London I'd been independent. I'd had work, I had my own life, and suddenly I'm married to this man in Los Angeles where everybody wants to know about him and no one wants to know about me. I wasn't taking mm. drugs, I wasn't famous, and I wasn't seducible. Yes. So I was completely... I was... <sighs> I was miserable, as miserable as hell. Yeah. And um, and then, of course, when um, we were invited to stay with... Uh, Ro My husband was friends with Roman Polanski, and Roman was going to Europe to make a film, and he asked us to stay with his pregnant wife, Sharon, uh, to keep her company whilst he was away and look after her. I refused because my my independent streak said to me, I'm not going to live with this woman, you know, going to say, is it all right if I make a cup of tea? Mm. I, I wanted my own kitchen and my own life. So I flatly refused and we ended up, we got our own house. And of course, Sharon and all her friends were murdered. With the Manson um, murders, is that right? The, Man the Manson murders, yes. Gosh. And gosh, I felt... I felt so proud of myself that I had refused to go and live with her. Um, what an escape. What a story. What an escape. Mm. I mean, you became, after this time, well, you were pregnant and you had your children, Claudia and William, during this period. And then a couple of years later, your husband left for Brazil. And 
again, going back to this, um, I feel like an energy in you, you decided to just follow him months later and you had no idea. This is before technology. You had no idea actually in Brazil where he was. And despite this, you boarded a flight with two young children, a little bit of money in your pocket, and you went to find him. And you ended up living in several small Brazilian towns, eventually destitute. Your husband was around less and less. And you had these two small children in a strange company. Tanya, this sounds like a Hollywood movie. How did you cope? (laughs) With difficulty. I worked for a while in Brazil after I got better. I had very bad hepatitis there, I think, from the water. I was teaching the fishermen the words of some songs which they loved in return for fish in the last place we lived in the last little village which was beautiful by the way I mean it was so it was breathtakingly beautiful the beaches and the sea Mm. so there were sort of positive aspects to it but in the end yes it was in in the end we we couldn't survive anymore Um, my children were my daughter had worms and they were slightly we were getting malnutritioned and anyway, it was time for my daughter to go to school. Did you find your husband? I, oh, I found him, yes. I I, uh, I found him at the very beginning. I'd written to an address he'd given to me. And uh, I didn't know if he'd get the letter, if he'd know I was arriving, but he did. And he met me at the airport. And we, we did have some very pleasant times together in Brazil. But he had got into Macumba, which is sort of Brazilian black magic, Brazilian witchcraft. So when I was when I had hepatitis, he dragged me down to the sea to wash me in the sea because he said the goddess Yemanja, the goddess of the sea, would cure me, and of course she didn't. But um, I did get better, and uh, my husband went through some very strange, strange, strange incantations there, and I left yes. him. In, I left him in Brazil eventually and came back to England, penniless took your children to a safer place, it sounds like. I did, yes. And so when you returned to England, as you said, you were completely penniless, looking for work, and met an old friend, by chance, um, importing alpaca jumpers from Peru, and asked if you could sell them. And this was your first foot into the fashion industry. Did, Did it call for you? Did you know at that point that fashion would be in your life? Absolutely not. Um, I was desperate for work. I tried. Do you want me to tell you what I tried? Yes, please. Okay. Go on. Well, I'd gone for a secret. I'd gone for a job as a secretary at a big credit card company. I'm not going to name them. And a big, huge man sitting in a chair, much too small for him, said, "Honey, if you, I'll give you a job if you give me a blowjob." And so I didn't go to work as a secretary there. I just can't um, believe. People suggest. It's just <laughs> astounding. I mean, you, I mean no, these it, are two it, different industries that you've now come across being sexualised. But I, I mean, gosh. I, I don't think anything's changed. I think men will always, there will always be men like that. Um, yes, But, okay, so you definitely told him where to stick it. I did, I did. Um, Friends of my parents suggested I try MI5 because I spoke languages. Um, But they wouldn't have me because I didn't have four English grandparents. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not required now, but it was then. So 
when I bumped into the man with the alpaca jumpings, it was like a it was like manna from heaven. It was a godsend, you know. Here was work I could actually do. I could sell. Mm. Um, if I think back, I realised that fashion was actually in my in me somewhere. I'd gone with my mother to the Susan Small fashion sales when I was small, where women used to biff each other with their bags over over a piece of clothing. Um, I'd helped my granny make my school uniform or my dresses. Mm. Um, and I loved shopping for vintage shirts and I always took my jeans in myself as well. So I think fashion and I love beautiful clothes. So although I hadn't considered having a fashion business, I love fashion. Mm. So the alpaca jumpers, yes, was a stepping stone. I learned I learned so much. I would do the trade fairs in Paris. I got to know all the retailers from selling to them. So it was it was an education. Each week I'm joined by our wonderful partners at Dell Technologies. We all know that the scaling journey isn't for the faint-hearted. So Dell Technologies have launched a free resource Dell for Startups, providing you with free solutions and a dedicated technology advisor for all your startup needs. They so believe in shining a light and supporting brilliant small businesses that this week they're giving away their advert to a brilliant founder to share their story. Be More Bob is a store for amazing dogs, inspired by Bob, our border doodle. From an idea to an award-winning business in three years, we are so proud to have gained so many loyal customers. Say hello, Bob. We are all about everyday adventures. We stock with the very best loot, including many great British brands of natural treats and food. I know, Bob, I said treats. We're also one of the UK's largest stockers of rough wear, the ultimate in harnesses, leads, collars and apparel. Let's not forget the amazing selection of toys, beds, gifts and more. Our independent, family-owned business is all about your dog, and we only ever stock what we would use with Bob. Bob is the most important boy to us, and the happiness of your dog is what drives us to be the best dog shop ever. From muddy walks, beach trips, rainy moments, days out and park visits, we've got everything you could possibly need for those everyday adventures. Why did we call it Be More Bob? Bob is kind, funny, inquisitive, adventurous and a bit silly, and we think everyone should be more Bob. From Airedales to Akitas, Border Terriers to Boxers, we know and love dogs, and we'd love you to be part of our pack of pals. Sign off for us, Bob. <coughs> To find out more about Startup Scale Up, head over to dell.com forward slash UK Startups. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. Your mum died suddenly. Um, she was only 55. And I read that it, it was then that you made this decision that you needed to start your own business. You needed something stable in your life because... You said that the anger you felt about your mother's death and your situation overall made you tough and determined to fight. Why did you feel you needed to fight? Did you feel like life had been taking a lot from you up until that point? I think my mum dying, um, I'd been to collect. I was selling the alpaca jumpers. I had an au pair who was helping me. When she went to her School of English, she would drop the children at my mum's and I would pick them up on my way back from work. 
I picked them up one night after work. And that night, my mother died suddenly. And um, yes, as, as you said, at age 55. And she was the closest person to me in the world, apart from my children. Um, the grief I endured, I suffered, was intense. Um, I, I, I won't even go there. But grief is followed by anger. My marriage had collapsed. My mum had died. You were on benefits as well, weren't you? I was... Well, I had been on benefits until I was selling, until I sold the alpaca jumpers. Mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, the grief was replaced by anger and I just wanted to fight the world. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that, that's what partly gave me the, the courage to start my own business. And your first business was called Ms. Ms. You were selling Ms. fashion sportswear and the business took off and you learned your trade, but left the business when you parted ways with your partner after five years. Tell me, fashion sportswear, was that a big thing at that time? There was no fashion sportswear in the UK. Ah. I saw this stand in Paris at the trade fair called Cacahuete. It was a French company and they were making fashion sportswear. That's what gave me the idea. I knew there was none in this country. So that's where I came in. And what was it like? Describe it. Gosh, I mean, if you, everyone on the streets these days is wearing it. Tracksuit trousers, nice tops, okay. nice tops with hood in a nice velour or um, padded cotton or basically what people are wearing now. And that didn't exist. It didn't. How incredible. Yeah, yeah. And what lessons did you take um, from that oh, with those five years? Did it sort of give you some grounding in this fashion world? I learned a lot, um, but I went through two partners who both, yeah, it didn't, it didn't work with my two partners. Um, my first partner left, when she left, she started something called Club Sport and she started supplying all the health, all the health spas and gyms and sports clubs. And by that time, I was a bit bored with tracksuit trousers and nice tops. I was bored with that, though. I didn't want to go on doing the same items for the rest of my life. And I, so my interest had turned to fashion. Mm. I didn't like the fashion at the time. It was very power dressing and women were dressing to compete with men by wearing structured suits and in which they looked terribly uncomfortable. And everything had to be sort of dry cleaned and so I wanted clothes which were really easy to wear, which were multifunctional, because women had to work, had to do so many things in their life. Yeah. You know, from the school run to the business meeting, to the washing, to the cleaning, to everything. So I wanted clothes which are multifunctional, but feminine. And this didn't exist. And this was the start. I read it was a, 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 a night with quite a lot of wine with the a wonderful Catherine Hamnet that you decided upon ghost. Can you tell me about that? <laughs> yes. Um, well, she was under contract to an Italian company. And I think at that point, I was still at Miz. So uh, we thought we'd, we'd have this company with a, a robot on the stand at the trade fair saying, place your order in my mouth. <laughs> um, so for that reason, we would call it ghost. 
But there were other reasons I called it ghosts, because it was a ghost... My father was a ghostwriter for many African presidents, and uh, this was to be a ghost-written collection. In other words, I worked with different designers, so my collection was ghost-written. Right. There we are. Did you know that night, even though probably that was said, you know, with a few drinks in you, and, you know, it potentially, maybe not taking it seriously, did you leave that thinking, this is it? I don't think so. I don't think so. But when I found the confidence and the necessity, if you like, because I was bought out of Miz by my partner. Yeah. We weren't getting on and uh, I offered her 5000 to get out and she refused and offered me 5000 to get out and I did. And then I knew I had to start my own business. So then I remembered the conversation with Catherine and Ghost. So I thought, right, and it also is going to be a ghost-written collection, so that's what it's going to be called. And that was it? Yeah. What were those first moments like, that first year of trying to set up? Did you have the same problems some of us do? Cash flow, you know, family support, childcare? Um, Well, it was all very, very hands-on. My children at this point were, where, where are we, in 84, 83, 84 My children are now 12 and 10 or 13 and 11, so it was easier. Yeah, they're not tiny. And I was doing it from home, so I would make lunches. I had, what, three people working with me, Uh and I made a huge lunch for everyone, and then when the kids came home, there was food for them. So it was very possible. My house was big enough. I earned enough money from the first collection to pay everyone. A friend of my parents lent me £1,000 when I started. I had the £5,000, don't forget, from from Miz. Yes. And uh, I developed quite a nice relationship with Barclays Bank, and they helped me as well. So there wasn't a huge cash flow problem, no, because the overheads were so low. I mean, I had no rent no uh, no mortgage. I just had uh, three people to pay. Tell me about this fabric, because this was the signature ghost fabric. And I, I didn't appreciate that, if I'm honest, Tanya, that that was one of the most, you know, a significant part of your story. Well, I don't, it would not have been anywhere as successful as, successful as it was without that fabric. And uh, it's, it's quite funny, actually. I was talking to um, someone who I worked with this morning. And she said, my God, you would have been so in, we would have been so in vogue now. It's completely sustainable, recycle, recyclable yeah. and, <laughs> you know, friendly, friendly fabric. Yeah. It comes, it was, this goes is a generic term. Uh, there are many, many qualities of it as there are with cotton or wool. And my viscose that, that I used only, is only made by one company in the world in Germany and it comes from trees. It's wood. Oh, wow. They're cut specially and, they re- and they're grown again. Um, so it's not destroying yes. nature because it keeps, re- it keeps re- regrowing. The fabric starts off like very, very hard hessian. And when it's boiled and washed, it develops that lovely, easy, flowing, soft feel with natural stretch and a sort of orange crinkle effect. And uh, my business was was founded on that fabric. Wow. 
And did you know that when you found that fabric? Did you know it was special? Well, I'd been looking. I, I knew what I wanted to make. I knew I wanted functional, feminine clothes, which could go in the washing machine and the tumble dryer and didn't need ironing. Yeah. Though those were my absolute, you know, that has they have to function like this. The first collection I did was, was with machine washable lamb's wool. And then I was stuck. I didn't know what to do for summer. But my designer uh, at the time, Andrea Sargent, she, uh, she was working in Italy and she'd come over twice a year and work with us. She arrived from Italy with this fabric, which the Italians had discarded because they said it wasn't commercially viable because it, it rips very easily when it's wet. And they'd, mm. had, they'd had huge damages. She came over with this fabric and I, the point is I made it work. You saw the opportunity in it. I saw the possibilities in it and I made it work. Wow. Tell me, by the 90s, Ghost was a fashion favourite and the brand was becoming very successful. And over the next decade, you found yourself at the helm of a global business that was growing every day. Before I go into the next part of your story, did you, when you were building this, did from your kitchen table, literally... Did you see the possibility? Is, it, is that what you wanted? Were you directing this business into becoming a global company? No, I wasn't. <laughs> I'm, I'm, Did I'm you just not... hold on to its coat's tail and it just took you there? I, can I just, one little thing. I also wanted the clothes to be able to fit any shape or size woman and any age woman. That was also incredibly important to me. I mean, it's all before its time, isn't it, really? Yeah, all shapes, all sizes and any age. I just hoped it would work, you know, and I wanted to make a living and mm. not be worried about bailiffs at the door and debt collectors, which I'd, which I'd had for years with my husband. Um, I mean, that's what I wanted. I didn't envisage this. I had no idea it would, it would take off the way it did. And... That led, uh, going into the next part of your story, and that led to this period of time that you were um, openly admit you were fighting demons, you weren't sleeping, and you were finding other ways to keep going. Tell me about that period. So the, the company is taking off, your children have got older, you're driving things, but actually underneath it all, it was not sitting well with you, it sounds. How did you cope? Um... I didn't actually have time to sleep because the business expanded so quickly and so fast that it was all I could do, you know, to keep control of it. And then I brought in a finance director and um, suddenly I was being asked to do, um, we were opening shops and the shops needed shoes and bags and scarves and and then a hosiery company, uh, you know, came mm. to us and they wanted they wanted hosiery and an eyewear company came and they wanted yep. eyewear and the perfume people came. So, yeah, you know, it, 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 it was just overwhelming. And, yeah, I was taking cocaine to manage. It was like fuel, putting fuel in a car. It kept me going and I managed on four hours sleep a night. I've often wondered what Maggie Thatcher, how she managed on four hours sleep a night. I, <laughs> I you know... It was a secret coping mechanism, was it? <laughs> I, I don't know. But, <laughs> but yes, I was very naughty. I was doing that to keep everything going. 
And in the end, it took control of me and I became the monster, not the business. It goes back to the beginning of this podcast where you say at the very beginning of your book, when you said that you became a bit of a monster, what was it that then became that turning point for you when you knew that you needed help and that you couldn't go on this way? Because am I right in saying you you coped or used this as a coping mechanism for a very, very long time? Um, it almost seemed successfully. I was a fantastic functioning addict, yes. Um, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't using that much. I was just, I mean, I was literally just fueling myself when I needed it. I was drinking too much red wine, especially in the evenings. I never drank during the day. So, I mean, I functioned very well for a long time. Um, I read it was, am I right in thinking it was 24 years? Yes, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was. So it just it just kept you ticking along. Um, all the time I was I was using, I told myself I can stop when I want to. Mm-hmm. And one day I realised I couldn't stop. Number one, number two, my finance director really said my behaviour was unacceptable after the shop opening in New York. Mm-hmm. The man I loved and was living with was going to leave me, and. Um, I was getting pitying looks from my daughter every time I saw her, saying, Mum, please look after yourself. All those things combined to make me realise that I couldn't go on like this. So um, my daughter actually arranged for me to go to a fantastic place in America. Uh, I was there for a month and um, I stopped. I stopped everything and I haven't had anything now for, what, 21 years. I was talking to somebody the other day about recovery and when people stop and come out of this period of time and when you meet everyone outside, they think it's all solved and it's, you know, done. You know, it's you've you've ticked that box and you're now um, in recovery and things. Did you find that aftermath? uh, Could you manage? Was it literally like turning on and off a switch? No, absolutely not. It can't be. Um, No, I became really quite vulnerable I lost my self-confidence, and that took a long time. That took quite a while to build up again. Um, It's a slow, slow um, procedure. You know, it takes a while. It takes a while to find oneself, to become the person that I always should have been, was. Um, It it doesn't happen overnight, no. And do you think that your business and the pressure that you were under led you to becoming a drug addict? I think the business certainly did, yes. Um, I don't think the business suffered when I got better, mind you, because I had such a fantastic team. Mm -hmm. The business didn't suffer because of of me. The business suffered because of a change in everything, a change in buying patterns, uh, the fact that um, there were hundreds of thousands more designers by that point. Um, shops bought differently, retailers bought differently. Instead of buying heavily into two or three lines, they'd buy a little bit here and a little bit there from lots of people. They didn't know what their public, what their buyers, what their, pub, yeah. Yeah. What they didn't, they didn't know what their punters wanted to buy. It wasn't yeah. like they bought a collection for the season. They would so buy they some. they bet thinly, did they, across multiple yes. things, which ultimately meant that you would have to then create these multiple lines when before you could just bed into a couple of designs 
at the time, am I right in thinking, as you're coming into this recovery period, Ghost was also looking for investment to expand the business and open more shops. And you'd been under, obviously, this enormous pressure and you wrote it in your book. And I understand the pain behind it, um, that your heart and soul almost were no longer totally in Ghost. How did that feel? My heart and soul weren't totally in it, though, for many reasons. One of them was that I had to take the manufacturing out of the UK, and that really hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I'd, we worked with several small units across the UK because it was important they only use cotton. Uh, they couldn't yep. use any synthetics in, in making our clothes because the synthetics wouldn't take the dye. Um, and I'd seen these families, you know, seen their children through school. Um, mm. And to take away the livelihood of all these different families really, really hurt. I was also going to a lot of meetings, NA meetings. Um, mm-hmm. So I wasn't that... I wasn't... I, I let my finance director basically take over. And he wanted investment to construct lo- lots and lots of shops yes. because wholesale business was declining. A change needed to come about and he was yes willing to to lead it but you you did find investment in the end but they wanted this 51% stake of your business although they reassured you that you would remain in your role and so would your finance director and all your staff yes and that wasn't to be yeah i i had a i had a contract stating that i would remain as managing director riz would remain as finance director and they would they would build on they would put in someone on the retail side because I'm hopeless at retail. I like wholesale. I don't like selling one to one retail. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. And I had a contract, but Riz was very very amiss, if you like, because he agreed to fifty one percent. Otherwise, there was no deal. And with fifty one percent, they could do what they liked. And they asked me to leave as soon as the deal was signed. Mm. And, uh, yeah. No job, pack your things, go home. Yes. Straight away, basically, three months after you signed this deal. I mean, yes. and your finance director as well? No, he was allowed to stay on to show the new finance director the ropes. And was the carpet pulled from under your feet? Did you expect that at all? I did not expect that. I did not expect that. I was shocked. And if it hadn't been for the fact that I was in recovery and I had good friends in recovery and a lot of support, I don't know, I would have, I would have just gone to pieces. Yeah. Um, I wasn't, also, I wasn't allowed to work for a year um, in the fashion business. Yeah, um, I mean, th- th- these, I was just talking, actually, you might know her, Chantal Cody. She was the founder of Rococo um, Chocolates. And yes. now she has a new company called The Chocolate Detective. And this happened to her um, at Rococo. And she said to me on this podcast that it was like grief, the denial, the anger, the depression, and that so many people don't actually speak about what goes on, especially to women, if I'm honest with you, what goes on when businesses are taken and what we've put in and what it actually does to our psyche, our families? As you said, you know, thank goodness you were in recovery. If it's not too painful, what was it like after this? This had been your life. Initially, 
it was absolutely horrendous. I mean, I couldn't believe it. My heart stopped. Yeah. I, I, I was in floods and floods of tears after, and I, I, I felt dreadful. But as it turned out, that year was a real bonus because I had a, a three-year-old grandson whose parents didn't have time to look after him. And I had time on my hands, so I looked after him. And I also, to get it out of my system, I started running. And I would run, I would leave the house and run for about a couple of hours each day. And I got fitter than I'd been for years. My goodness. Yeah, so between the grandson and (laughs) my running... Almost equates to the same amount of energy that you would have used for your um, grandson. Maybe it wasn't. A lot of it was walking. I was walking and yes. running. Um, but between my grandson and the running and the meetings, NA meetings, um, I coped. And and because of the lovely man who'd stayed with me. Yes. I coped. But it was in, initially, initially it was, in, it was incredibly awful. Um, but it, it, you know, after after a while, it was okay. Do you look back at this, Tanya? Now, do you still hold anger and grief for it? Good heavens, no. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I sometimes think, oh, what a fool I was! I should have just kept the business small and carried on. But I didn't, and they went bankrupt two years after they pushed me out, and. <laughs> And do you have a theory to why that is, that they went bankrupt? My karma. (laughs) Each week, I hand over this moment to our partners at Avon. Over the past few months, I've been working closely with Avon reps, supporting them on their personal and business journeys. I'm constantly amazed by not only Avon's work and impact, but the resilience, grit and determination of each and every single Avon rep that I'm lucky enough to speak to day in and day out. They really are an amazing group of women and it's truly humbling to be part of their individual journeys. So with that in mind, for the rest of this series, I'll be handing over this ad break to some of them to share their own unique stories with you. I'm Hayley. I'm a mum of two and I'm a wife. I've been on the Avon journey as a rep and sales leader for just over four years. I originally became an Avon rep for the extra income and also to sell my own products, but I had no idea how much of an impact that one decision would make on my life. I love being an Avon rep for so many reasons. One of them is that I'm in control of my own time and I'm able to work around my part-time job as a hairdresser and beauty therapist. I'm a driven person by nature and being a sales leader allows me to encourage and motivate others to take control of their future as I've done with my own. Having my own financial independence has also allowed me to book a holiday to Disneyland Paris for me and my children and I'm also able to buy my kids shoes, clothes and everything that they need. I am so so proud of my business and working for Avon really doesn't feel like a job. I can honestly say that joining the Avon family changed my life. And I'm so excited for the future. If you'd like to find out more about our partnership or how you too could go on your own business adventure as an Avon rep, head to holly.co forward slash Avon. 
Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. I look at high street brands, I look at lots of brands, actually, where people take out the founder and you literally can see almost the company, you know, starting to starve of oxygen, the the, the invisibleness of a founder's DNA and imagination and creativity and, I don't know, maternal instinct, leaving it, people can't really see it on the outside but, you know, it's not surprising that it went under a couple of years after you went. Holly, I can't believe how stupid these people were. Yeah. I mean, why why do they want to take over a business which is going bankrupt? Why don't they want to make something of it? Mm. You know, it, it sort of astounds me how the short-sightedness of men... Yeah. Of, of <laughs> It's the ego, right? They think that they could... I mean, it has to be the ego. You, you have a company that's successful under the helm of one person... They believe that if they take it away and put more bodies, male bodies in there to run it, it will be exactly the same. It has to be. <laughs> it has to be the ego. I just don't understand because actually it's not even business sense. If you say, oh, it's just because, you know, women can't really run businesses or thank you, founder, you did all the creative bit. Now let's let us take over now. You know, it's serious business. Yeah. What, what you, you think to yourself, but that doesn't make business sense. That's you've got no security blanket here. Mm. You're about to try and run it without the Duracell battery. Exactly, exactly. You live in the New Forest now with your husband Andrew. I do, and you both take great joy from nature. And my goodness, you know, you you've earned it. You, you you've you've had this what feels like a Hollywood movie uh, existence. Do you believe now, when looking back, that you were destined for certain paths? Or do you think our instinct and our choices we make along the way play a role in how our lives play out? I'm dubious about the choices. Um, I don't know how many choices we make. I mean, if I hadn't bumped into the man with the alpaca jumpers, would I have gone into fashion? I just don't know. Mm. If my mum hadn't died, would I have had the anger and the determination and the everything that went into me to to fight the world, to build a business? I, I'm dubious about how many actual choices we make and how many are made for us. Mm. I think instinct comes into it a lot. I think people who know what they want to do when they're at school and they follow it through and they become this are uh, very very lucky i never had i never knew what i wanted to do um that's why i tried so many i tried so many things after university mm. that's interesting and we we i suppose it's the doors that get opened for us and which ones we end up walking through yes you know it's you know and then the choices then put before us then and it just keeps going doesn't it yeah and if i hadn't bumped into andrew in a in a restaurant one night he was on a table with some friends of mine if i hadn't bumped into him then who knows what <laughs> yeah. life is full of chance it's it's a lottery i don't know um you're st you're now 78 am i right in saying that i am and you're 
totally beautiful on the inside and out and you're a <laughs> female entrepreneur that. oh absolutely <laughs> who's achieved global success uh, entirely on your own terms and i mean it's quite amazing do you feel that when you look out there and you look at business and you look at the world and 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 you see women and where we're at do you think we've made as m- enough advancement from let's say when you were at the helm, do you think we are or do you think we're static to where you sort of left off? I hope we're not static. I think it's very difficult for women because men are men and they always think they know best. But there are a lot of women now, I think, in in government, in all over the place. Um, So it's, it's much better than it was. It's much, much better than it was. But men will always be men, and um, those men who run the country, who mainly from Eton, are taught that, you know, men are superior. Mm. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so yes, it's 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 tough for women also because they have the children, and so continuity in whatever they're doing, whatever their choices in life, is also difficult. Mm. So women have to be much better almost at what they do than if a man is doing the same thing. Yes. That's what I think. Men, women have to do the same job as a man, but much better. I think in in order to keep keep where they are, where they are, yeah, along with the rest of what we do. In the end, you know, being more um, responsible for the household, more responsible for the childcare, etc., etc. If there's something you wished um, for women generally, what would it be? What do you think is a, a way that we could behave that you think might help us? I think understanding men. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, you know, understanding there will always be men who want sexual favours. There will always be men who are misogynists. And I think women need to understand that and be prepared. Can I ask, at this, the end of this podcast, I ask all my guests, um, if we were on an epic roller coaster, you would be wearing the most fabulous ghost dress um, and the wind would be in your gorgeous hair. Tell me, at the lowest point of your journey on that roller coaster, what would you say it was? When my mother died, absolutely no question. That was the lowest, lowest point of my life. The absolute lowest point of my life, which changed my life. It, ch- it literally changed my life. And can I ask you what would be the highest point when you think that you'd, you know, you huge smile on your face that you'd made it or a moment that's in your mind that meant no, so much my, to you? <laughs> no, my, my, my highest point is when I got married to Andrew on my 70th birthday with my five grandchildren all fighting each other to see who would give Andrew the ring to give me and signing the register on top of us. Um, <laughs> that that point on my 70th birthday with Andrew and my, my two children and my five grandchildren all around us, that is my highest point. Wow. And what, what was that day like? Oh, it was just perfect. It was perfect. It was very impromptu. We had to do it while my daughter was here from America and her children. It was just gorgeous. She had gone out and got lots of pink um, flowers or confetti to throw. Um, we recited the owl and the pussycat. 
went to sea in a beautiful pea green boat and the five grandchildren held my hand while I signed the register. They were all on top of us. Oh. It, was, it was just the most lovely, lovely day. And then we went back to my house and had tea and cake. How fantastic. How fantastic. So if you had, I don't know, maybe a saying or a quote for, for us, um, what would it be? I'm not sure if it's the British Design Museum or just the Design Museum, but they said of ghosts that it was a quiet revolution which goes unnoticed at first. There is so, so much now that can be thrown, so many clothes around now that can be thrown in the washing machine and tumble dried and loose clothes and comfortable clothes. That's the norm now. But Ghost was the first person to do it. Mm. I'm so proud of that. It's just incredible. Absolutely. And the fact that it was so sustainable is just breathtaking. Moths don't like it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. Tell me, Tanya, can I ask you, this has been just a glorious moment for myself, for everyone listening, especially women. Can I ask you to do us the honour of reading a letter to your younger self? I'm not sure how, how well this went, but uh, I'll do my best. Thank you. Dear Tanya, the Dalai Lama said... Most men die without ever having really lived. I know this won't be true for you in the future, as you will go on to live an exciting and very full life. However, there are many things you could do to improve your relationship with authority and make you a better team player. I know the teachers at your school have failed to move you up a stream, despite your perfect exam results, but you must not use that as an excuse to give up your studies. If you continue to excel... Ultimately, they will have no choice but to acknowledge your abilities. You will have won. So my advice is to never give up or give in. When you leave school, I know you want to be an actress. This is the only thing you want to do above and beyond anything else. However, this is an extremely challenging route and you will find yourself in impossible situations where sexual favours are asked of you. To take this route, you must be 100% committed and feel it in your heart and your bones. You only have one life, so don't find yourself in old age saying, if only I'd done that. I know your parents will put pressure on you to go to university and not acting school. I listened to them and went to university, but I had no plan for when I finished. I tried various jobs leading nowhere, so I got married, had two children and became deeply frustrated with life. Was this all my life was about, being a mother and a housewife? I think it is important to get your own career in gear before getting married and having children. If your future husband's career fails, you will have nothing to fall back on. And don't marry a man because he represents excitement and a way out of your search for a career. Try to build a solid base to grow your family from, maybe a business, but don't be 100% reliant on your husband. One thing I have learned the hard way is never trust in the integrity of someone you don't know. When you are all alone and presented with some dreadful options, consider this. Would you trust this person if you were not in such dire straits? 
When your husband left you and your six-week-old daughter in Los Angeles without a penny, you gave all the art you had both collected to his lawyer in return for plane tickets home and some money. Don't do what I did and cave into the exchange. Stand your ground. Perhaps offer one picture rather than all of them. It is important that you understand this, as it will happen again. Many years later, when I had built up an incredibly successful fashion business, I trusted investors and their grand plans and promises to build a thousand shops and make me the centrepiece of it. In the end, they reneged. Despite what was written in the contract, they pushed me out of the business. So my advice to you is always get good legal advice, stand your ground, and never sell more than 49% of your business. In the end, you have to learn to trust people and understand how to read their intentions. This can be very difficult, but with practice, you'll do a better job than I did. If learning to trust strangers is a complicated process, then it must begin by learning how to trust yourself. You have to find the confidence and become fearless without drinking like a fish. Refreshments may be fine in the beginning, but they will take control of you in the end. Don't do what I did and wait until I was overwhelmed by an addiction to alcohol. I don't want you to have to go through the withdrawal and adjustments I made to get away from my addictions. Today, I reach for the stars and live each day to the full. I have learned to be open-minded, willing, patient and able to listen. I have learned that you can't change another person. You can only change yourself. Now that I have been through the crushing process of rehabilitation... I am able to enjoy years of happiness with children and grandchildren. I've got rid of all the resentments which I know already have started weighing you down. Whatever happens, remember that it will turn out okay in the end, but you can spare yourself some of the torture I went through by dealing with issues and challenges as they come up head on, learning properly from them and not blocking the pain of loss or bitter disappointment every day by drinking. You will find there is a better chance of living life on your terms. I wish only that you were not weighed down with the things I was and find peace sooner than I did so you can avoid the unnecessary detours I took in my life to find peace. And as you get older, remember this. No one ever lived a happy life by worrying all the time. Let the worries go and always keep smiling no matter what. Oh, my goodness, Tanya, (laughs) let the worries go and always keep smiling. You've been so open and honest with us all today. And it's such a feminist act, I feel, to share with us really the lows of your life and be that vulnerable with us to help all of us, whatever we're going through, understand that we can come out the other side and we can stand 70 and be married and in love with all our grandchildren around us. You, you're a formidable woman, one that we highly respect, Tanya. Oh, Holly, how lovely of you. I'm sorry I get lost for words sometimes. You know, my, my brain, I, I can't always find the words anymore. My memory is going. I'm really sorry. Not at <sighs> all. Not at all. Tanya, your story is just... It's, it's one that's going into this library um, collected with other strong women that I hope will be listened to by thousands, tens and thousands of women, younger generation, <laughs> and that we can pull from it um, those lessons that you've shared with us today. Tanya, on behalf of all of us, thank you so much. Thank you, Holly. Thank you very much. Thank you.
you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. Mm-hmm.